everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Bottom Up Revolution. I'm your host, Tiffany Owens-Reed. I am a writer at Strong Towns, and I host this show, which I consider to be a great privilege. This is the show where we talk to ordinary people who are doing their best to put Strong Towns principles into action in the communities where they live. My hope for this show is that it inspires you um, to uh, take action in your town. Um, and also, hopefully, it helps you see how that doesn't always have to be a huge, um, a huge project, a huge undertaking. It can be, it can be something really little. Um, it can be something tactical. Um, there are so many different ways to advocate for your city and work to make it better. So hopefully, through listening to these interviews and stories, you can realize that you have everything you need to take um, a small, small step and improve your community. So yes, I hope you had a great holiday. Uh, we took. A little bit of a break, um, but I'm back and really excited about the conversations that we have lined up. Today, I am joined by John John Wasilowski. He is actually an old friend of mine, which is really fun. He lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee with his wife and two kids. He works full-time in social media and outside of work, makes content for various social media platforms, mostly TikTok and Instagram, related to urbanist issues. He was a founding member of the Chattanooga Urbanist Society, a bottom-up group of residents who are making their city better through tactical action. And he's also a member of the Chattanooga Strong Towns chapter. John, John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's good to see you again, Tiffany. Yeah, good to see you too. This is this is really fun. I guess it's been fun for me because we've kind of been in each other's orbit uh, for a couple years to kind of see your journey with uh, becoming interested in urbanism and and all these different uh, topics and issues. I love to just kick things off a little bit. Can you just kind of tell me about that journey or like how how city issues and urbanism became so interesting to you? What I tell people is like the my story really lacks a salvific moment. Like there wasn't this like light coming from the clouds that changed my mind. Um, in fact, it was a mutual friend of ours um, which sparked one of the earliest conversations I had about this. So growing up, I thought I always wanted to be an architect. I thought about the built environment a lot. One time I was in a van driving to Atlanta and this guy named David Parker, who you know, who is an yeah. architect student at Georgia Tech. And he started talking about the public realm. And specifically, he was telling me about this idea of new urbanism, and I had never heard of it before. And that was the first earworm that sort of got me to start thinking outside of a building when it comes to architecture and design. And from that point on, I, I couldn't stop focusing on what's around me. I took every class in college I could. I wasn't, I was a philosophy major, but I took every class in college I could that was adjacent to this and architecture and things like that. Um, but it was probably in 2018 where um, I had been an EMT. I had seen lots of violence because of cars, lots of like sad things. And I walked to work every day. I made that decision to walk to work. And it was just, it was like, I love the walking. I hated the interaction with the world around me. And so um, I think that was probably the closest thing to a moment that radicalized me was walking to work every day in 2018. And which city was that in? So I was living in Colorado Springs at the time. So I lived I'm close to downtown. My work was downtown. It was less than a mile to work. Um, but yeah, it was it was sort of like the moments every day on that walk that sort of forced me to think like we've got to try to change something about how our cities are built. So what was the next kind of chapter or act in the story for you? Is that kind of starting to leverage what you because I know you work in social media is was making content for social media sort of the next step for you or was there something else? I really dabbled in it, but not consistently. It wasn't really until 2020 when I moved back to my home state of Tennessee, which is where I live now in Chattanooga. Um, I moved back here and the city was approving a tax incremental financing plan to build a huge minor league stadium, which three years later, we're still fighting like what's going to happen. We just found out it's a $40 million over budget and we haven't even broke ground on it yet. So it's just, it was one of the most absurd things. And I showed up to city council. And when I did, I realized by the time it comes to public comment, it's already been decided. I was too late. There was nothing I could do. And I was so frustrated at that point, I started making content consistently every single day. So it was 2020 really when I just decided like, 
I'm going to start showing up to every city council meeting I can, and I'm going to start talking about the issues. I've read all the books. I've seen other people do it. I'm just going to do it in my own style. Um, and it was actually the first video that took off is I did a walk audit. I walked with my kids to the closest part and I showed all the hostile things we encountered and what that was saying about our priorities. And I was just pointing out different elements of design. And that video got 1.7 million views. <laughs> and when I met the mayor, he's like, oh, I know, I've seen your video. So it was like, that was a light bulb moment of like showing people how to interpret and translate what they're seeing in the built world was something that people were hungry for. And so it was 2020, I decided, okay, content storytelling. And I think of my idea as sort of like a design translator, letting people learn how to see the world and what is what it is they're interacting with and what policies shaped it. So can you tell me about uh, where you're from? Um, one way I like to think of this is where's home for you? I was born in Florida. I grew up in Tennessee. Tennessee is what I consider to be my home, Chattanooga, Tennessee in particular. Um, so we're in Southeast Tennessee along the river. It's a beautiful city. It's, it's a beautiful, um, set it's the nature is beautiful. The city is beautiful. Um, but there was something that I found different once I moved here full time, which a lot of people have found is if you live adjacent to Chattanooga or you visit Chattanooga, it's a different experience than when you live here. There's mm -hmm. a part of downtown that they work really hard to keep beautiful for festivals and events and tourists. But then when you go outside of that little hub, you see a, quite a different city, which is what I've been experiencing since I moved back. I actually spent some time in Chattanooga. I'm trying to remember which year. I think it was, let me see, 2014 or 2015. I, it was when there was a pretty big blizzard, I think. But it was a it was an extremely cold winter. And I remember this because I had won a grant to write about cities. And so I was doing four different cities over the course of a year. And I figured I would go south for the winter because I didn't have a car. So this whole year I was living without a car. Um, kind of traveling the country in all sorts of adventurous ways. And I remember getting there and I was like, are you kidding me? Like I came cold. here to avoid <laughs> the cold and then it just was, yeah, it was really cold. And that's interesting because one of my memories of Chattanooga was being there without a car. I lived really close to downtown. I, really, I lived really close to a coffee shop. There was a bakery. And so I walked everywhere and I remember how lonely it was because there was no one else out. Like there was no one else out walking. And I didn't at the at that time, I didn't have the language to articulate what I was experiencing. But I remember that I remember walking around in my leather bomber and just feeling like, wow, this is so lonely. There's no one else out here. And I feel very awkward because I must stand out like a sore thumb. It's so what's interesting is two of our most downtown streets, Broad Street and Market Street they really lack entrance frequency. Got It's gotten a lot better since 2017. So what you saw would probably look very different, but still there's a lot of parking garages. There is a million square foot building that's like um, meant for the TVA, Tennessee Energy Company, the Tennessee Valley Authority, that's now vacant. But even before it was vacant, the first three floors are window and doorless. So it's just like you're walking next to so um, it's a it's a challenge that I think we're overcoming right now, like surely but sh slowly but surely. But the entrance frequency um, makes some of the places that should be the most lively feel very dead, even in the middle of the day. For people who don't know, can you explain what entrance frequency is? Yeah, I, I think I learned about it from Jeff Speck, but um, it's the idea of like. Um, different options for businesses and doors to walk in and out of. And so if you think of like, you know, ma like Main Street USA, it's lots of little shops cuddled together. Now imagine Main Street, but you separated those by parking lots each time. And that's what the regular strip mall looks like, or, you know, um, uh, suburbia. So you're walking a lot of times in front of nothing. You don't have a lot of um, choice. So it makes it less interesting to look at. It gives you less options of things to jump into, walk into, walk out of. Um, so, yeah. As you were starting to get involved in this conversation, what was driving you? Like, what was your why? Yeah. The biggest thing was we're fortunate enough to get in 
uh, a neighborhood that was sort of a streetcar suburb. It's, I mean, it literally was a streetcar suburb back in the day. We don't have a streetcar anymore, but it's close to downtown. It has this little downtown feel type of strip, a cluster of buildings that used to have a lot of commercial activity that's pretty dead now. And everyone loves this neighborhood. It's super desirable. We got here and then I realized um, I don't see people outside. Like I, the streets aren't active. There's no reason to be outside slash the roads that are active are active with cars and they're dangerous. Um, there are schools three blocks away that people drive their kids to because there's a street that's too dangerous. And so what really activated me or what really got me in this moment um, getting to a point where I can't not get involved was thinking I have a, I have a eight at the time and, and five-year-old kid. I want them to be able to walk to school. I want them to be able to ride their bike. And so the urgency kicked in when I realized like, I want them to be able to do this before they can get their license. I want them to have some autonomy. You touched on this a little bit already, but I'd like to ask you about it in a little bit more detail. When you moved back to your city and you started hearing about this minor league stadium project, what was it for you that clicked and you realized like, oh, wait, like I can I can be part of this conversation. I can say something like I can actually be involved. I think sometimes there can be a bit of a gap between reading the books and kind of understanding the issues or understanding the language around cities and urbanism and walkability, but then actually starting to put those principles into action in our local communities. What was it for you that kind of motivated you to take, to, to bridge that gap, to make that jump and actually start getting involved a little bit in, in those more public conversations? Yeah. I think for me, I had to see a role for myself in it. Like I had to see, like there were two voices when it came to this policy people who were for it and people who were against it. And it was so binary. I thought there was very little nuance. And so I started um, just in, in, in an online forum, like in a comment section or something, just asking questions of like, okay, you're for this because it's also going to help bring in affordable housing and update the roads. Um, how would you feel if we just brought in more affordable housing and updated the roads and didn't build an $80 million stadium on top of it? And so um, for me, it was seeing like there were some people who their ideas were aligned, but they were using different vocabulary. People were missing each other in the conversation. And when I found out that my city council had public comment, I was like, OK, three minutes a week, I can speak to ideas and I'm going to try to bring analogies and concepts and definitions to words. And that was literally the first 10 times I went to city council. That's all I did. It's just like hey, when we talk about affordable housing, here's what we mean um, so that people who are anti-affordable housing understand sometimes we just mean housing options. Sometimes we need housing density. Um, so, yeah. That's very interesting to me how you actually had a strategy for every time you went to a council meeting um, of like what you wanted to say or what your, what your goals were. So what's funny is at the time, TikTok only allowed for three-minute videos, and I my job was to make TikTok videos, and our public comment is three minutes, and I thought, I'm perfect at writing a three-minute script. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> and so I was just like, um, you know, what if our city council learned the term missing middle housing and what that means? And so one week, I just decided I'm going to talk about missing middle housing. And what's great is um, two weeks ago, three different city council members use the term missing middle un unprompted. So I, I was like, they got that up. Now they voted down three options for missing middle housing that week. <laughs> so we're not quite there yet, but they knew the term. And that was like, that was what I started doing is like, okay, I'm going to talk about multimodal and um, things like that. So you went one step further beyond just showing up to city council meetings and you realize you could actually start improving the city itself. Can you tell me what that was like for you with your famous repair story? Yeah. So, um, so there's this one side of me that's saying, okay, one, my job is just to show up and to speak out. And I was doing that with city council. Um, but there was this bridge near my house that went over a road, a car knocked out a section of the guardrail and for two weeks, the guardrail sat completely empty with just caution tape there. And I saw someone walking by it 
and they were kind of stumbling. I don't know if they had a limp or what. And I just thought they could fall. And that's a 25 foot drop onto another road. Um, and I thought the city should do something about it. Like, obviously you can't fix a guardrail same day, especially if there's department of transportation, it's a state road, city road. I thought, but they could have put something temporary up. And then I thought, you know, if they put something temporary up and it fails, they have to accept the liability. And I thought I should put something temporary up. And then I thought if I put something temporary up and it fails, I get the liability. So I decided to just do it secretly that I talked to my neighbor. We came up with this plan and was like, let's put up a fake wooden guardrail. Let's, we fished wood out of a dumpster at a construction site. We measured it, built it, and then I put it together on site. But I also didn't want the city to get credit. And I didn't want to get credit because I didn't know how illegal this might be. So I created a fake organization, um, essentially like me and a group of people who we, we had we had decided we were going to build benches for bus stops, but this was something different. And so we created this organization just um, as an excuse to make sure that the city didn't get credit for something the city didn't do. And we put it in place. We put up a video and with zero followers, the video got 150,000 views. It just took off and something really resonated. And we realized, okay, this is this fake group is very much becoming a real group. Um, and that's where it all started was just this guardrail. And I think it was just this concept of like, we don't need to wait for someone to ask us to do something little in our city. We can make small, meaningful changes right now. Um, now, after the video went up, within three days, that guardrail was actually a play, replaced. Now, we, we don't know if the official work order was scheduled to come in regardless, but what we did notice is that things happened quickly after our guardrail went into place and was getting publicity um, locally. So that fake air quotes organization is no longer fake. <laughs> yeah. That is what what is today referred to as Chattanooga Urbanist Society, correct? Exactly. So the Chattanooga Urbanist Society is just like a loose group of people. Anyone can submit an idea for a project, organize an event, put something together. Um, we've built about 60 benches across town for bus stops. We've cleared um, pedestrian pathways where trees have fallen. Um, uh, and the city has like cleared out the tree for the road. Like, so there are situations where there was a windstorm, trees fell across the road. The city cut the tree to make it so a car could drive by, but left the sections covering the sidewalk. And so you would see people with mobility aids and wheelchair riders riding in the street because of the sidewalk. So um, we've had people, you know, walk out with chainsaws and clear up sidewalks. We built the guardrail. Um, we've daylit intersections, protected crosswalks. Um, put in flower boxes to keep people from parking on sidewalks. Um, it, it really runs a gamut because it's it's not a nonprofit. It's I tell people we have more in common with three raccoons in a trench coat than we do with an actual organization. We're just making stuff up, implementing stuff. But um, we have a lot of good stories and a lot of good stuff that's come from it. What What was it like for you personally kind of adopting this tactical approach? Is that something that's that fits with your personality? Was it kind of a stretch for you? How did you um, kind of go all in with that uh, that strategy? So last year, Chattanooga had one of the one of the worst or the worst pedestrian death year on record. It was a two hundred percent increase from the year prior. It was an anomaly. It was absurd what was happening and no one was bringing attention to it. No one was like thinking about it or even talking about it. And so um, for me and my personality, it's like I, um, uh, I make a lot of content on video, but video is safe because I can edit it. I can put it out there. I can control the narrative, but I'm not an extrovert in a lot of ways. Like I get my energy from not being around big groups of people. I hate being at the center of organizing things, which I've been forced into. So it was very, it was very uncomfortable for me. Um, but it was, it was one of those things where it's like, I couldn't, I couldn't not do it because of what, what I saw happening. Like, and um, it felt like one of those things that when I saw other people were hungry for it too, it's just like, yeah, there's a motley crew of introverts spending their weekend, you know, hanging up signs, raising awareness of pedestrian deaths and talking with police officers or whoever will walk by or whoever's asking them what they're doing. 
Um, but uh, yeah, it really came down to like, it wasn't comfortable. It wasn't what I wanted to do, but I could have not do it at that point. One thing that stands out to me, listening to your story about the different projects you all, you all have worked on, I almost have this feeling of like, this is how cities ought to be. Like people ought to be able to go out there and plant flowers and fix street corners that are dangerous and um, paint a crosswalk if you need it. Like it shouldn't be this complicated bureaucratic process to improve our city in these small ways. But then on the other hand, I, I can imagine it's really frustrating when you observe these problems that in a way the city ought to be doing. How do you how do you resolve that tension of, of like wanting ordinary people to have more agency in their city, but also realizing that a lot of these problems are emerging because the public sector is not really doing, I guess you could, someone could say, well, they're not really doing their job. Yeah. So let me tell you something interesting. Early on, as I started to feel this like bifurcation of like, okay, I need to show up to city council and do things officially, but I'm not willing to wait for my neighborhood to be safe. I want to do something to make it safer. I started thinking, okay, there needs to exist two groups maybe like a strong towns type advocacy group that is showing up, doing things properly. And then maybe the people who are more like activist oriented will show up and will build things. So as I, uh, as I started talking to people about these two groups, um, I was surprised that architects, former city planners, engineers, people who I thought would be very passionate about advocating for this, would want to be in the strong towns type group, but they all wanted to be in the tactical group. And then I couldn't figure it out for the longest time. I couldn't figure out like, why does this buttoned up Patagonia vest wearing, you know, khaki pants engineer want to show up with me diving into a dumpster at, at 11 o'clock at night, but they don't <laughs> want to show up to city council. And then I realized it's because their contracts are with the city. A lot of these people who care deeply about these issues um, uh, are afraid of biting the hand that feeds them. And so I, I agree. Like, one, it shouldn't be weird for citizens to take agency of their neighborhood and say, we want our streets to be slower. So we're necking, uh, we're daylighting this intersection. We're necking down this road with flower boxes. I think that should be allowed. But on the other hand, the reason it doesn't get done political wise is that I think some of the smartest people and deeply caring people in the world, uh, in this, in the city, um, have competing motives where it's like, if I show up to the microphone, I might lose that contract or that bid. Um, so that was something I realized I was surprised by as, as I started pushing the idea of these two groups, um, the people I thought would be too buttoned up to show up for, for tactical stuff. They're the ones that wanted to do it. That's really interesting. Yeah. So you mentioned um, a strong towns group. Is that something that's being organized in your city now? Yeah. So what's funny is um, there are different people trying to do it. I realized I didn't have the bandwidth to do it, but I was like, if it if it happens, I will be a part of it. And um, I spent a, a good portion of last year traveling. And when I got back, I found there was this initial meeting of the strong towns group and showed up. Um, the guy leading it is this guy named Jack. Um, some friends of mine that I had met sort of just being publicly engaged and active were there too. And I think the first meeting, there was like seven of us meeting at a brewery, talking, sharing ideas. It was great. This was early December. And then um, we had a few community events that were tragic, but activating for a lot of people. And I think there's 30 plus people in the Discord server now. Um, chatting and um, engaging and, and getting involved. And it's a, it's a very um, diverse group. There's um, an epidemiologist that took some city data and created a heat map where all the accidents are happening. Um, there's uh, uh, an actuary who took some city uh, publicized data and created this sort of like 2023 wrapped where we're, we're gonna present it to the city tonight at city council with like, here's all the different numbers we need to know, how many hit and run accidents, how many pedestrian deaths, how many accessory dwelling unit permits were submitted, things like that. So it's it's a great, it's a it's a really strong group. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited to see what they're, what we're gonna do in 2024. Part of this tragically has been um, kickstarted by a recent car accident in Chattanooga. 
yeah. um, that you posted about on your uh, social media. Yeah. So for people who don't know, Chattanooga is right on the Tennessee River. It's extremely wide. And um, the downtown area and an area across the way known as the North Shore are connected by three bridges. One of them is a fully pedestrianized bridge. It's the postcard of our city. People love it. Um, races run across it, everyone, and it dumps people onto this road in what's called the North Shore. That's a four lane, two lanes of traffic in each direction sort of strode lined with lots of mom and pop shops. So it's a heavily pedestrianized area with a two wide road and not adequate like design or any sort of traffic calming measures at all. Like there aren't even pedestrian paddles or flashing lights or anything. And there was a road rage incident. Um, two people trying to overtake each other in the middle of the day. One of them drunk, overcorrected, ran into the sidewalk, killed a mom and young child, and um, just more like wounded. Like the the father is the father is gravely injured. Um, and quickly the narrative that was being spun up is that this is a freak accident. Nobody could have prevented this. And it was like, no, there was two lanes. So they tried to overtake. They tried to use that lane to overtake. If there was one lane and they tried to do that, they would have crashed at a lower speed. There were not bollards in place. Um, there, It was small business Saturday. We could have had that street closed down to car traffic. So when I went out to make a video at the crash site, what I wasn't expecting was there still to be like blood on the sidewalk. So the video was very emotional and it, um, and it resonated with people and just my D I just got flooded with hundreds of DMS of how can I help? Or I was hit by a car and it's not showing up in the city data. There's lots of people whose accidents aren't going fully reported or just like I broke both legs last year walking on the street. And so just that it was a very, it was a sort of traumatizing where everyone was trauma dumping into my DMS and I just told everybody, show up to city council with me, show up to city council with me. And honestly, this was sort of like an, a culmination of my year, last year and a half of experience of showing up. And why showing up is so important is people were like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And I was able to say, here's how it's going to work. A line's going to form around a mic. You're going to have three minutes to speak. Um, write down what you're going to start with, write down what you're going to end with, tell a story in between. And I created these pamphlets to help people know what to say. And um, that city council meeting, 150 people showed up and with people only a given three minutes a piece. And they were very, they cut you off after three minutes. We kept the mic going for two and a half hours of just sharing stories, giving different angles. And um, that week, the city decided to close down two lanes tactically using orange barrels um, for the weekend for holiday shopping. And that was our suggestion. So we came with that suggestion. Um, and so it was, in, it was, it was so tragic that people couldn't, people couldn't stand by, but what was um, serendipitous was the people piling into my DMs, I actually had some ideas on like, here's how it works because I showed up to city council. So um, it's been a crazy 60 days. They still have that trial going on, shutting down different lanes. They're collecting data. And it looks like they're going to permanently change it down to neck, uh, give it a proper road diet. It's probably going to be a three lane, two lanes with a turn. So yeah, it looks like it's going to be a big change. That's really exciting. I'm, I'm sure it must feel really rewarding to see all of that time you invested into educating yourself, going to city council meetings, you know, learning how to post on social media about these issues and then be able to activate and mobilize a group of people to make a meaningful change in your community like that. It feels good to see some traction. And what's mm -hmm. crazy is Chattanooga has had some horrific pedestrian accidents that deserve this sort of action. An 80-year-old man crossing a five lane road got hit and it got spun up. He wasn't using a crosswalk. Well, there wasn't a crosswalk for a half mile stretch of the road. Um, there were unmarked crosswalks, which legally he has right away, but nobody knows that. Um, there was a mom walking in a crosswalk. There, there was a lady this year who got hit by two cars. She got hit by a car. They stopped to help her and a second car hit her and drove off. Like in that moment, 
And these were all things I was incredibly frustrated. Like, why isn't this gaining people's attention? Um, the year you were here, 2017, a Vision Zero advocate from Atlanta was in town for a Vision Zero conference and got killed by a car. And it's in Jeff Speck's updated version of Walkable Cities. Like that what happened in Chattanooga. Like all of these things you think would be enough to do something. But I think in those moments, people felt frustrated but didn't know what to do. And um, there was a small group of people, the small little, small but mighty strong towns chapter who had just started meeting two weeks before who picked up some slack and everybody did something. I couldn't have responded to those DMs. I didn't know how to create a flyer. I I, I was just like, we need to make a digital this. We need, and people stepped in. So um, it wasn't just me, but man, it does, it does feel good to see that like this group's timing was impeccable because if the strong towns group hadn't started early December, I think the outcome would have been very different. It would have just been another in the long list of tragic stories that nothing changed. So my question for you is, um, why do you think, I know this might seem like such a basic question, but when it's obvious that there is such demand and interest and desire for, for this kind of change, for safer streets, for more affordable housing, when, when it's clear that constituents want these kinds of outcomes, from, from just your experience, why does it take so much work to convince public officials to take these things seriously and rethink kind of how they go about business or how they think about the city? Um, kind of, I, I guess I'm sort of referring on what you were saying about the engineers and the architects. They really want to be involved, but they're afraid of, you know, kind of messing up their contracts. Do you feel like there's something analogous going on with the public sector where maybe they want to advocate for these types of design decisions, but there's something holding them back? Or like, I'm just curious, have you thought about this or or what have you noticed? Yeah. So for me, one, it's showing up. Like the only people that show up to city council are people that have a lot of time on their hands and retirees, things like that. And those people care about very different things. They care about, um, traffic and wait times at stoplights and um, noise ordinances. And so these politicians and even city council members who I've met with, who I think are so well-intentioned, the noise coming from their constituents is we're full stop people from California from moving here. Like that's, that's what they hear. Like they're not seeing younger cohorts and it's, it's hard. Like it's hard for me to show up. Like our city council public comment is ambiguous. It's whenever a meeting ends and you never know if the meeting is going to be 30 minutes long or an hour and a half long. And so in order to show up for public comment, you have to get baby a babysitter in the middle of the day, Tuesday. And, um, and so I think the main reason there's a disconnect between what people want and what they care about, first and foremost, it's who's showing up to influence the politicians. Um, if our city councilors saw regular people, and so this is the first thing that we did with Strong Towns is we created um, what we call city council happy hour. So every Tuesday, it's happening tonight, we meet at city council, a few of us will get up to the mic and speak. We'll kind of have ideas on what we're going to talk about. And then we're going to hang out and have fun afterwards. And we tell people, if you can't make it to city council, just come get pizza and beer with us afterwards. And so what we've done is we're trying to weave in political action and showing up into a lifestyle and into a social life so that it's not so much of a chore. Um, but that's probably the biggest thing is just like the people showing up have influence and we're not showing up right now. Well, I think that's huge. This this model that you guys are trying to create, like what you said of trying to weave in like political, like showing up to these conversations, showing up to city council with also with, with camaraderie and food and like just having to get time. I feel like that's the way things should be in a way, you know, like this sort of life divorced from, I'm, I'm using the word politics, not in the way that we use it mostly these days worrying about like all these things happening at the federal level and which party you're in. What I'm talking about is just participating in the political life of your community. Right. Um, and it seems like that's something that you're trying to revive and kind of show people like how that's possible. And I, I think that combination that you're having of like camaraderie, you're not doing it alone food, 
you know, beers and we'll be there to show you, you know, we'll be there to kind of help bridge any knowledge gaps you might have. I think that sounds like um, a great recipe for revitalizing this idea of the civic lifestyle or the civic, yeah, the civic lifestyle, so to speak. And yes, and everything you just said, like perfect summary of what I said with way too many words. (laughs) Um, uh, But also there needs to be, in my mind, very careful articulation of these ideas, especially in the South and the political South. And here's what I mean by that. There's urbanist content with Yimbis coming out of California. And what they say is just not going to resonate in a red or even a purple state politically. So what I've chosen to do is realize, and this is where I think Strong Towns is so good, is it's like, hey, look, when we talk about mixed-use development or upzoning, um, we could use language that resonates with our community, property rights, increased freedom, liberty, things things like that that might work in Chattanooga. Nobody cares about or might not care, but it might not resonate in the same way if you live in the Bay Area. So, um, so one, I would say like what I was saying about the camaraderie and the showing up, that's huge. But then also how you phrase it, because right now, one of the loudest groups locally is an anti 15 minute city group. They're heavy into like a, a conspiracy that 15 minute cities are like a global cabal to destroy things. So like we can't use... We have to stay away from language like a 15-minute walkable commute. Like we can't say the word 15 minutes. We have to say something else. So uh, another thing, a a big part about showing up is also choosing your language carefully and helping translate ideas so people understand really what's what's most important. Yeah, that reminds me of an article I read yesterday. Somehow I found myself on the website Car and Driver. Don't ask me how. (laughs) I really don't know how this happened. But I found an article written by this woman who loves pickup trucks. And but she was pointing out how they're getting larger and larger and larger. And I I was pretty impressed with the case she made. I don't know if she's from Texas. I guess she was writing with a Texan reader in mind because the point she made about why we ought to worry about the increasingly large pickup trucks going on, but you know, being released into neighborhood streets. I could give you a bunch of reasons why I don't, why I think they're not good for us, but her case was um, some, the line was something like, basically she was saying the bigger the trucks, the more we have to pave. We're going to have to pave more to build bigger parking spaces, parking lots, wider roads. And her argument was that something like no cowboy would want to see, you know, the horizon paved over with more cement, something like this. And I was like, oh, I love it. you know, you're not wrong. I, I'm married to a Texan and he regularly laments the cementivizing of the world. <laughs> and I was like, clever move, clever move. <laughs> so what she said and was able to articulate as a Texan truck driving farmer is something I could never do as a bike riding one car Honda Odyssey owning like, like someone who works in social media. And this is actually something I've noticed about showing up was um, so this local organization, when I was like steeped in the activity of December, where we had a lot of movement because of this tragedy, um, they were like, Hey, listen, we've actually, our research has found, that phone calls and emails are more effective than public comment at city council. Go ahead and have your group show up, but just remember what changes, what's more likely to change a city council member's mind is dialogue on phone, whatever. And I actually believe their data, but what I found is that showing up for public comment changes the individual that's giving the comment. The introvert that's ter- terrified of speaking in front of a group, um, the extrovert that canceled plans with family to hear like a zoning meeting or whatever, like showing up and the voices are so different and they all play a role. So with the urbanist society, um, we will have work days that we call trash talks where people just show up, we pick up trash, we talk about what we're seeing. We may describe this is a desire trail, this or desire path. This is what daylighting means. Um, But the most important part about that is that everyone who shows up is a little bit more radical about pedestrianized spaces when they leave. And what they will bring to the table will be different than what I bring to the table. Right. And, and 
that's yeah. so powerful to to be at that city council meeting. Like you can send an email from the privacy of your home. You don't know who else is sending an email. You don't know who else is calling. But when you go to the city, when you go and actually attend the meeting and um, plan to give a comment, then you have that visible component of seeing like all these other people and they're probably all very different from you. And it's like, wow, there's a sense of solidarity in that. I, I can imagine. Yeah. There were, so the city council meeting that had 200 hours of public comment, the line that went through there, let me just give you an idea of people who showed up. Um, a priest of a church downtown who shared stories of multiple homeless people who got hit in front of his church, but refused to call an ambulance. So that isn't even that, that crash isn't even in our data set. Um, talking about how we need to show empathy from the least of these. Um, someone on the board of our public transit talking about walking his daughter to school and she almost got hit and the driver looked terrified. And he said, we need to remember that we are not just creating victims out of innocent people. We're creating perpetrators out of innocent people. So showing empathy for the person who has to live with the trauma of hitting someone because of a moment of distraction. Like that was a, I just never thought of that point of view. Um, and business owners, neighborhood association presidents, like they all showed up and it was so powerful to just see the diversity of opinions, but with a common cause. So you um, have found a way to leverage another set of skills with like the social media side of things. I'm just curious, can you share with us kind of like a, a takeaway from, because you have this in-person side of what you're doing with like getting involved with your local community, showing up at the meetings. It's very impersonal. That's very in person, not impersonal, but then you also run several accounts creating content to distribute urbanist concepts and ideas and perspectives to the wider world. Um, it's kind of an open question, but I'm just curious, like, what have you learned from that? What What do you find exciting? Um, what are What are some challenges? So one, um, it's been very crucial for opening up doors. The reason my DMs were flooded with people saying, what can we do? Um, was because I had a video that got 700,000 views about the incident. So people were finding a common meeting space in my DMs about what happened. And so um, the first thing I, I would say is that social media gives you the ability to amplify your voice and to hone in your... Um, your message like nothing else. Um, and But what people need to know is that there were hundreds of pieces of content that I made that flopped, that didn't, that didn't end up being that great, that were on a channel with zero followers. Like the biggest thing is I created content that I enjoyed making even if nobody watched it. That gave me the longevity to continue making it. And then it gave me the platform in which to sort of unite people who were upset about an incident that happened. So um, that's the first thing I would tell people is like, find something that you can't not talk about. You might be a historical preservationist and that's your angle. Like that's what you should be talking about. You might be someone who's passionate about your city and the events that happen in your city. Post about that. Be a social media account that celebrates your city and occasionally fold in you know, critiques or <laughs> highlight some danger zones or talk mm -hmm. about something. But um, yeah, there's, there's nothing. I, so much of what happened, what has happened wouldn't be happening without the social media influence. Um, but the social media influence only came because I posted about things I, I could continue posting about and never get bored. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you and your family just returned from a six month um, adventure around Europe. I'd love to know um, what's what stood out to you from the urbanist perspective. Was there anything that you saw that just really inspired you? Yeah. So um, we planned this trip. It was actually about seven and a half months. Um, no, no uh, uh, six months would have been great. In fact, we realized seven and a half months was a little bit long. Um, but we realized we could live in different parts of Europe for about as much as we pay to live in East Tennessee. And we, we pulled it off because we rented out our house and we don't have a car payment. Um, and we went to places like London and Paris and Barcelona, but we also went to, you know, um, Zadar, Croatia and Luca, Italy, places you haven't heard of smaller towns. And, um, 
I think what we learned was that like one, your town doesn't have to be rich. You don't have to be some Nordic democratic socialist country to uh, afford a certain type of walkable community. Um, and I, th I think that was huge. And I think um, also realizing like, it's so weird that I have to schedule exercise in America because I don't get it in my commute because everywhere I was in Europe, um, going places required me to just stay active. Um, and um, yeah, so I think those are probably the two biggest things that that I saw is like, wow, a lot of these cities, a lot of these countries we're in do not have more money than the US. Um, and a lot of these places, like it's more convenient, not less convenient because it does things like increases your activity in the day, brings locations closer together so you don't have to schedule a big carpooling trip. Um, it really... It really was an eye-opening experience from from all the different cities we went to. Did you have a favorite destination overall? Uh, yes. Um, well, I would I would say I would say two. Um, uh, Barcelona was my favorite because they have done so much tactically to like shut down blocks, bring places, like do quick builds, experiment with things, and make beautiful things. And I loved seeing families every day after school playing in a, in a plaza, in a courtyard, the social capital that just naturally develops from that urban environment blew my mind. So Barcelona um, is, is definitely up there. Um, another like sort of sleeper was um, Zadar, Croatia. It's a really small, but it was on the water and we were there 31 days and my son counted that we swam 29 of the 31 days in the ocean. Wow. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that was that was great. Just thinking like you can have a city that butts right up to the sea. Like so many more people get to experience the waterfront when you could build densely and nicely right next to such a great feature like the ocean. I really loved Eastern Europe too. And I when I did my six month walkabout, um, yeah, Eastern Europe was definitely a highlight. Croatia, Montenegro. Well, what, what, were, what were your things that you you picked up from your your time overseas? I think it was the way that the design of these places infuses the simplest things with joy. So uh, I had no money on this trip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I had enough to keep going and it was it was it was such an adventure. but I I remember how something as simple in Rome as just like going to get gelato or going to the local grocery store or just going to get like an espresso in Paris. Like these were the simplest things. Yeah, I'm sure it would have been nice to have like all this money to pay for admission tickets to all the things, <laughs> you know, and do these amazing experiences. But at the end of the day, like it was also just so delightful to go get an espresso to like, you know, put on your best outfit, fix your face go out and like have an espresso for two euro and you're in a social environment. You can feel like you're part, um, you're part of the, of the fabric. Right. Um, so I, I just, I really appreciated that. Um, as someone, yeah, who was traveling pretty modestly, I never felt like I was like excluded from participating in the city, even though I had no money. Um, there were still plenty of things I could do, like taking a walk along the Seine or, um, yeah, just, and yeah. And I also really loved hostel culture. <laughs> so just meeting so many interesting travelers at hostels and all the stuff, all the creative ways we found to have fun, um, you know, with few resources was just really enriching. I love it. Yeah. I, we felt the same way too. Um, like I was, I was so happy just Rome, Rome was probably one of my favorites. I almost thought I, I thought I would cry just from how beautiful it was. Did you guys go to Rome? We, we did it. So yeah. I mean, long story short, I had this crazy idea to go to zero major cities to just <laughs> focus on little one. And I was actually being pretty pretentious about it. I was like, we're going to go to London and it's visit. It's very hipster of you, John John. I know, I know. <laughs> and that's like what my wife was calling out. Like, And I'm so glad that I got one over because we, we found a free housing situation in London and spent almost two months um, in London. And it was wonderful but i just thought like london they speak english it's gonna feel like america but like new york or something but like i was so pleased with london paris oh my goodness like it was um yeah it wasn't it wasn't any but we didn't make it to um we didn't make it to rome um and in fact florence was just a day trip for megan i didn't even make it to like florence so 
Well, all that to say that one of my favorite memories is just walking in a very, um, just ambling, not even walking. Like I wasn't even going anywhere. I was just ambling throughout all the narrow inner streets. Oh, and I would yeah. stop at fruit vendors and I would buy clementines. I would buy clementines one or two at a time. They always looked at me kind of funny, like why was I only buying one or two? But just fewer things brought me joy than wearing my favorite scarf, ambling through those streets, buying clementines, and just appreciating the beauty. Um, and yeah, it's just one of those memories that I'll I'll take with me for the rest of my life. I love it. And that's that's what's crazy is like you are in those moments and you're like, people live here. Like my vacation destination is someone's home. Why can't my home be a destination, be destination worthy? And that that really fed me coming back was like, I want Chattanooga to be destination worthy. I want people to like be like, I can't believe people live here. They're so lucky. And that's, right. yeah. Well, speaking of visiting Chattanooga, if someone were to come to your town for a couple hours, a day trip, um, what are some local businesses that you would say they absolutely need to see? Yeah. Um, the, uh, so if, uh, the North, I'm going to say that I'm going to talk about, um, the, the North shore where this, um, incident occurred. Cause it is a beautiful part of the town. It is like one of the crown jewels of our town. Um, one visit Renaissance park. Um, Coolidge park is the famous park. Renaissance park is part of Coolidge park, but you pass under this bridge and Renaissance park is different. It has like civil war history. It has interesting design. It has sort of like trails. You can ride your bike through it. It goes along the river. So um, uh, visit Renaissance Park, make your way up to Fraser Avenue. Um, you can go a little bit further in to what's called the North Shore to a place called Rosecomb for a great cocktail. Some of the best cocktails are going to be at Rosecomb Bar. There's a local bookstore over there called the Tattered Cover. And then you can grab um, a local ice cream at Clumpy's Ice Cream and walk across our beautiful pedestrian bridge. Um, that'll take you across the river to downtown where you can then do a bunch of other stuff. Um, so I don't know if that was listing off too many things. No, that's perfect. Go grab a cocktail, grab a book, uh, read it in the beautiful park, eat some ice cream, walk across the bridge. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Um, well, we'll put links to all of those businesses in the show notes, as well as links to John John's various uh, social media channels where he shares um, interesting content about cities. And if you're listening to this and you're in the Chattanooga area, we'll also have a link to the Chattanooga Urbanist Society website. Um, John John, thanks so much. I feel like we could easily talk for like another half hour, hour, just going back and forth on different ideas. I really appreciate your time and you sharing your story and your experiences with us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I love, love what y'all are doing. Love strong towns. Also fun fact, John John will be, um, speaking. I'm pretty sure at the, uh, strong towns national gathering in May. So if you're there, you'll have a chance to say hello in person. Uh, we'll both be there. So Thanks for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode.